Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. For the child to develop into an adult with a healthy psyche, we need to have experienced emotional mirroring, which means a parent that is capable of reading what we're feeling and mirroring it back through facial expressions, through tenderness, through touch and gestures that indicate that they know what, that we're sad, we're lonely, we're frightened, we're happy, we're curious, whatever state we're in, the, the parent can signal that back and make us understand what it is we're feeling. And that's how we develop the very core of what's called emotional recognition. We know what we're feeling and we know what it's trying to tell us to do. Then we also need modeling and twinship. Modeling is a parent that shows us how to succeed in the world, which is a model for agency, for achieving a goal. And very often that takes the form of a parent that shows us what it's like to ask for help when we don't know how to accomplish something, a parent that shows us what it's like to be a team player, a parent that shows us what it's like to be resilient and bounce back from setbacks. Finally, we need a caregiver who's also going to be a kind of a friend, a companion that will, when we go through difficult or when we try out new tools, will be with us the first time we learn to ride a bike, a parent who will stand behind us and be that person that helps steady us, a friend. And so those are the three things we need, uh, according to Coat. We need emotional mirroring, which is the most important of the three, but we also need modeling and twinship. Even if you had the best parents imaginable, what's called good enough parents, in Winnicott's terms, it's literally the term, good enough, because nobody's perfect. And if you had perfect parents, that wouldn't be great, because then you wouldn't learn how to repair relationships in the real world. So you hope that you have parents that at at times can show you also what it's like to repair damaged or disappointing experiences. Even if you had the, the quintessential good enough parents, there are times when emotions that you needed to be seen and understood, impulses that you needed to have validated, uh, curiosity that you needed to have a friend to explore, were not met. We're not given a safe reception. And so those emotional states that we experience that sometimes lead to disconnection or abandonment or rejection or feeling of being, uh, there's something wrong with us, if they happen frequently enough, those emotions that are not mirrored start to feel very foreign and they're not knowable. They become experienced by the child as these physiological states that lead to abandonment, that lead to disconnection. And the child does what any child will naturally do. Two things. One, it will suppress those states. Those states will start to feel very threatening, unpleasant. So the child will 
try to not manifest. For instance, if you, obviously, a lot of women are conditioned to, through modeling in our culture, are shown that women are forgiving and build consensus and they're not allowed to manifest anger, which is an absolutely healthy emotion that's necessary. But if you, as a child, get abandoned for every time you get angry or you get shunned or shamed or uh, rejected, then when you start to feel angry, one, you won't even know what it is because nobody will have shown you or helped explain, hey, you're angry, that's okay. But the second thing that will happen is you'll want to get rid of your anger. You'll want to push it down. If you're a guy, and I grew up with a macho, very alcoholic, violent guy. And for my dad, young boys were not allowed to feel fear. It was not okay. It was, it was showed that you were weak. And so for a lot of my life, when I started to feel frightened around other kids, I would repress it. And then it would later return, as we'll talk about, uh, in a much more dysregulated state. When we start to experience a couple of emotions or impulses, for instance, if you have same-sex desires and you grow up in a very uh, homophobic uh, family, then you'll repress those. If you have um, an interest in being creative and spontaneous, but you grow up in a family where that's not okay, then you'll repress those. So any innate, entirely natural impulse or feeling you have that is not allowed or permitted, we will not only suppress, we'll start to feel ashamed. There's something wrong with me. Because every time I start to feel this feeling, I get rejected. I get my parents feel I'm too much. I'm too big. I'm a pain in the ass. And so we develop this emotional belief of core shame that there's something about me that's unlovable. And whenever those feelings start to return, there's what Freud called signal anxiety. This spike of, um, there's something wrong with me. I've got, to, I've got to get rid of this part. All of the core forms of anxiety that um, plague adults stem from this belief that if I feel this way, I will be rejected. If you look at the core forms of, neuro of anxiety, there's separation anxiety, which is there's some emotion or feeling or impulse in me that will lead, lead one of my caregivers, my parents, or somebody that's important to me, to reject me. Neurotic anxiety is there's something in me that will lead my peers, my friends, my social circles to abandon me. And decompensation anxiety is the fear that there's some impulse in me that will drive me crazy. So every basic core anxiety we have stems from this underlying fear, not of what's going on in the world around us, but that there's something in me that is unlovable, that is ugly, that other people will not want to be with. So to protect ourselves from this this emotion or feeling or impulse that has led to rejection, we develop what's called defense mechanisms. Every time we start to feel lonely, if we've been shamed for our loneliness, or every time we start to feel uh, sad or frightened, 
if we start to have same-sex attraction or every time we start to feel an impulse to uh, be sexual in any form, we will start to employ tools to get rid of, to protect ourselves from those very natural states of being. One tendency of a defense mechanism is to externalize. When we start to feel anger, we try to get it out of our body by venting our anger on someone, just literally pushing it out so that I'm I can't feel this way, so I'm going to put it on you. The person who works at a job where their boss is constantly belittling them might come home and kick their dog. It's horrible, but what they're doing is they are deflecting, getting the anger that they feel towards their boss, they're deflecting it onto their child, their partner, their pet. Um, projection is when we try to project the feelings that we have onto other people. It's not me that's angry, it's you that's angry. It's not me that's frightened, you're terrified. It's not me that's sad, you're depressed. And there are all these different kinds of personality disorders that develop, cluster Bs, such as uh, narcissism, you can guess which powerful American right now has that. Um, histrionic personality disorder, the tendency to be sick all the time to get attention or to be overly dramatic. My father had antisocial personality disorder, which is people that constantly need to break the rules to be seen uh, because they, uh, they can't tolerate being ignored. But the most common way we repress feelings that we are frightened of, that we've never learned to in incorporate or um, integrate into our personalities, those, the, way, the way we get rid of those feelings that have led to early rejection is through intellectualization, thinking rather than feeling, thinking rather than being with the pure emotion in the body. When we feel fear, many of us repress it by worrying. We just worry about everything bad that can happen. Oh, maybe my business will fail. Maybe my girlfriend or boyfriend will leave me. Maybe my, you know, maybe I'm dying. So it's a way to turn the fear that's physiological, because that's where all primary emotions are felt, largely in the body and also just in moods. We turn it into a story so that we don't have to feel and be with and learn to integrate those, those feelings that we've been terrified of all of our lives. When we feel angry, many of us will resort to resentment. We'll, instead of just feeling angry that someone has transgressed and has made us feel, has done something unjust, or has attacked us, or is trying to get something from us we don't want to give, we'll turn it into a story so we don't have to feel angry. Many of us, when we are depressed or we lose a relationship, instead of feeling sad and grieving, we'll rely on self-pity. Self-pity is a tremendously efficient way to not feel your feelings. It turns into this long story that's very attractive, a victimization, but it doesn't process or heal. Uh, when we feel powerless and meaningless in our lives, many of us will co compensate through grandiosity, stories of how important we are and how underappreciated. And if we quit our jobs, they'll see. It'll all fall apart without me. 
When we've done something that is antisocial, that is harmful, many of us will, instead of feeling guilt, will rely on rationalization. We'll tell constant stories in our head of why we had a right to scream at that person or storm out of that event or not show up for this thing or whatever. So this brings me to the, the core of tonight's theme, which is one of the key ways that people try to repress those feelings that have been led to constant rejection in their lives is through seeking the most perfect, brilliant insight or wisdom that will make all of those pesky negative emotions go away. When I was a kid in school, especially when I was in uh, college, I would constantly just spend time in bookstores, and I had that same energy that I had in liquor stores, where I look at these books, and I was sure that one of those books held the secret knowledge that was going to give me the tools so I would never have to feel anxiety again. So I was never going to have to feel lonely, or I was never going to have to feel like I was overwhelmed in life. All of these are totally natural emotions, but I wanted something to solve these feelings. And that very quickly turned into this sense that there must be somebody out there as well, some person that knows this secret wisdom that can make all the difficult feelings go away. Well, if you're waiting for the reveal, here it is, there isn't. The very desire for gurus and for transcendent human beings is nothing other, and I'll say this uh, in as clearly as I can, it's nothing other then one more step in the self-rejecting, self-loathing, seeking a way to not feel our feelings, seeking an escape from entirely natural emotions. It's a desire to have some figure who writes self-help books or who seems to know the perfect meditation and maybe covered with tattoos or maybe not, some figure who has it all sorted. And we want that so desperately because when we start to feel those repressed emotions, we feel such shame because it reminds us of all those rejections that just are bathed and there's something wrong with me. So rather than feeling that, we want someone to alleviate it, make it go away. We gravitate towards people who are both confident but relaxed, imperturbable, who present themselves as if they've never had a fucking goddamn emotion, especially sadness or anxiety in their entire life. And they drive me fucking crazy. I went from, I started being dragged by my dad to Buddhist centers when I was a teen, when he got sober. He immediately transformed from a low-bottom alcoholic to a Zen Buddhist. And he was, he also was diagnosed as bipolar, so he did that kind of uh, insane jumps. So he'd bring me to these places where there'd be these gurus who, some of them were very famous Buddhist teachers, but all of them had this one thing in common, which they talked in these voices that were whispers 
that were like, hi, it's so nice to see you. That yoga teacher voice, you know that one? That I, oh, it's so welcome. I, I don't feel any self-loathing. I never have. Um, the only one who wasn't like that was Trungpa Rinpoche, who was drunk off of his face. That was fucking great. But the rest like had that kind of I, you know, I know some secret. And so it planted in my mind this idea that there's um, somebody out there, the one who knows, the one who's got the secret sauce, the secret knowledge. And it made me at times, it makes, when you think there's somebody out there who's got it all sorted, it actually makes the core shame and the core sense that there's something missing in my life and there's something wrong with me, it exacerbates it, right? Because now there's somebody who showed you you don't have to feel this. You don't have to feel sad or anxious ever. So it's a mistake, right? I'm feeling something that's a mistake. So it made me feel like, why should I even try? Why should I even bother? Because, you know, I've been you know, trying this Buddhism for a long time and still I get despairing. I still have at times social anxiety. I still have at times uh, depression. So I don't think that these claims of some transcendent wisdom are healthy for us. And I'm deeply unattracted to it. And that's why I write articles like why I come clean to my uh, community about my social anxiety and stuff like that for Tricycle, because I want to make it very, very damn clear to you that I'm working with the exact same emotions and feelings and challenges, and that my all I can offer to you is that I've been doing this and that I'm a fuck of a lot better than I was before I started. I am so much happier, so much more at peace. I can now, uh, my work is meeting with people and emotionally regulating them. And I can do that because of these tools. But that doesn't mean that I've been, that my fear or loneliness or anxiety has been completely eradicated. When I was newly sober 23 years ago, I was once at this AA meeting and uh, I looked around and everybody around me was fucking crazy. <laughs> Literally. And I said to the guy who was my sponsor, I said, what am I doing here? These people are crazy. And he said, with a smile, yeah, but you should have seen them before they got sober. <laughs> The Buddha said that grasping after ideas, what he called Didi Upadana, are wrong views lead to papancha. Because the more we try to find the perfect view or the perfect idea or the perfect insight, it always disappoints. It's like trying to buy the perfect computer or laptop. It's not going to be the perfect laptop in a little while, right? You're going to like, at first you're going to be, oh, this is great. You know, it's really fast and it looks really shiny, whatever. And then 
a few months down the line, you'll open it, and then a few months later, you'll start running out of hard drive or whatever, and you'll get more and more and more unimpressed by it. It's the same thing with ideas. It's the same thing with insights. The Buddha said, the more we try to solve everything by looking for some perfect wisdom, the more we just keep on grasping and reading and filling up our minds with more and more insights, and it doesn't end anywhere. It doesn't lead to any uh, greater sense of peace or self-acceptance or connection with others. What's amazing, too, is that all around us there are solutions to human misery that do work. If you look at communities where people connect and share their emotions and there's no expert present, I'm talking about 12-step recovery, I'm talking about refuge recovery, I'm talking about support groups, I'm talking about all kinds of Quaker you know, groups where people go and they simply share and there's no expert in the rooms. It turns out those are the most efficient places for healing because it's that feeling that there's some expert in the room who's got it sussed, who's sorted it all out, who's sort of looking at us from this pitying remove of, oh, it's so sad that you're feeling that way. That actually gets in the way of our healing. All of the suffering and healing we need is uh, sorted by finding secure bonds and connections with others, and all of it is also healed by accepting and self-compassion. There's no mystery. There's nothing, if you're looking for some secret wisdom, that's pretty much it. The Buddha, in a famous sutta called uh, uh, Simsapa, he says to uh, his followers, look, these are, you see all the leaves in this forest? And they go, yeah. And he said, that's all the wisdom there is in the world. You see these four leaves? And they go, yeah. And he says, these are the four leaves you need to be happy. So that's all I'm going to teach you. What he's referring to is essentially the Four Noble Truths, right? Which are essentially, if you want to know, that in life there's a lot of suffering at times. It not, there's lots of good things, but there's also getting old, getting sick, our mortality, losing people we love, uh, being stuck with really irritating people. That's one of my favorites in the Buddha's list. <laughs> and being separated from people you really love and care about, right? So those are, that's the list. That's what's going to happen. There's no way around it. You don't get, nobody gets a human birth without at times feeling shitty, without having sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair. Those are also on the list. And, but then the Buddha said we make it all unbearable, not because of those inevitables, but what makes it really unbearable is that we try to not ever feel those things. We try to escape them. We try to crave something that will make all these natural emotions and experiences go away. And so it's in running from our feelings and seeking some special insight or wisdom or some special book 
or some special audio tape or something that will fix and solve it all, that's where we make life unbearable. Here's my favorite teaching by the Buddha. I love this one. The Buddha is teaching a group of people who definitely do not believe in Buddhism or anything. They're filled with doubt. And they say to him, you know, every couple of weeks there's another spiritual person coming through here who says they have the answer. Why should we believe you have the answer? And the Buddha says, don't. Don't believe I have the answer. Don't, don't believe that what people who profess to have wisdom or common sense or bring to you gossip or rumors or say that they've figured it out through logic or that here it's written in some book. Don't believe it. It's only when you see for yourself that this is a path that connects you with others in a secure and safe way that doesn't cause harm. Then, follow that. The Buddha did not want people to become Buddhists, so my encouragement is to not become a Buddhist. Stay whatever you are. Accept whatever you are. What the Buddha taught is simply a psychological path that's framed around self-acceptance and connecting with others. There's nothing that you are missing. There's nothing that you haven't been told. There's no special uh, secret course that you have to take for $199 or whatever. And there's nothing missing from you. And there's nothing wrong in you. What we simply need is what we've always needed. Compassionate, empathetic friends and a little bit of the ability to sit with whatever feelings we were taught in our early life are not acceptable. But they are. We just need to learn how to accept them. So that's about it. I hope something was interesting in there. And uh, we're now going to practice being with difficult emotions. So, you have to run to the bathroom, but uh, find a comfortable seat. And just a reminder, the basket is there and we desperately need uh, get what you can. But anyway, just find a comfortable seated position, closing the eyes, and just, we'll start by just relaxing the body. When you come across a place in life that's really sacred to you, that's really a place that is special, where you can put down all of the stress and truly land in your life and appreciate your life, the first thing that we do is, without awareness, the body relaxes and all of the unconscious tension and stress we carry around from the uh, constant dramas and excitations and busyness of life is released. So we'll take a few breaths and we'll allow the body to settle into the present. So let's take a nice in-breath, inhaling through the nose, like you're smelling in a really nice smelling candle, and lift your 
shoulders up while you're breathing in and just hold them up however much you want and then breathe out through your mouth blowing out that candle and just dropping the shoulders and then seeing if you can pull your shoulders slightly back so that they open up the chest but only if that feels right for the second in-breath through the nose, pull in your belly like you're trying to hold in your, your stomach and just contract those abdominal mus muscles and then breathe out and soften. Just let out a really round, pliant belly. Nobody's looking, so just let it all hang out. No need to... Try to look in any way, just relax. And then for the third in-breath, clench whatever other muscles you'd like. Some people, the toes or the, the buttocks or the fists or the muscles in your face, locking the jaw maybe or squinching the eyes or the nose and then breathe out and just relax the face, relax the muscles around the eyes, release the jaw, let your fingers relax comfortably, soften the muscles in the arms and the legs. So that's the first part of arriving, just adopting a body that's landed in life, that is no longer a busy body, as it were. And then the second part is when we reach one of those really special places in life, we give ourselves permission to not think about stuff that isn't happening right here. When you really arrive at like your favorite beach or your favorite park or your favorite place in the country or your favorite friend's house. The first thing that you do is whenever there's a thought about stuff that's happening elsewhere, that's unresolved business or challenging conversations or conversations you've been putting off, all of that when they arrive in the mind, you just say, okay, but I'm not going to think about you right now. I'm at one of my favorite places. I know I'll pay attention to you, but not right now. And when a pesky thought bypasses your awareness and it captures your attention and pulls you into a fantasy or a memory or a worry about something that's not actually happening right here and now, 
Don't feel any sense that there is something wrong or bad about it. It happens to us all. It's entirely natural. Just relax back into the sensations that are present around you. Relaxing into the sounds that are drifting up from the street, sounds of traffic, trying to hear the furthest sound from you. The most distant traffic. And then the closest sound, maybe a sound of your clothes rustling or someone next to you breathing or a sound from the room. And just allowing all the sounds, both near and distant, to arise and pass without adding any story, without visualizing what's creating those sounds. So if you hear a car horn, just listen to the car horn without visualizing the car. You can also notice the lights flickering behind your closed eyelids. That doesn't mean visualizing right now any image. That just means those natural flickering lights that happen when we close our eyelids. You can feel the sensations of your body sitting. Maybe you'll feel the cushion, your hands resting on your thighs or knees. Maybe you'll feel the body swaying slightly. And finally, the most common sensation that people use to stay present and grounded is this the feeling of your body breathing. For me, I feel it most apparently is my chest expanding and contracting, expanding with the in-breath and releasing with the out-breath, in and out. And then over the course of a meditation, I begin to follow the in-breath as an energy first starting in the belly and then continuing with the chest expanding and then a feeling of energy in my upper chest, in my throat, and then finally a sense of it arriving behind my eyes. And then as I breathe out, just feeling the body settle and release any contraction from the head down the neck to the chest to the belly. So using the in-breath to feel energy moving up through your body, awareness of how your body feels, and then as you breathe out, releasing and relaxing. So we're going to just sit in silence for a while.
If your mind jumps around a lot and gets caught in thought, don't worry about it. Just keep on relaxing, bring it back, and just feel really good about that practice. That's wonderful. Just being present without adding any self-judgment or self-criticism is really healthy. When you wake up from a thought, just take a nice, big, relaxing breath. Relax again your body, your shoulders, your belly. If you feel yourself falling asleep, just open your eyes and look at the ground in front of you. Or hold your breath on the in-breath.
So at this point, take a survey of first how your breath is. Does your breath feel relaxed in the sense that it's long, the inhalations and exhalations? Does it feel fulfilling when you breathe in and out? Or does it feel very shallow, barely noticeable? Or does it feel very fast? Just have a sense of what your breathing is like, and then have a sense of also what your feeling. Feelings are emotional activations, often in the front of the body. Tight stomach might indicate fear. Hollow chest, loneliness. Clutching at the throat might indicate a feeling of powerlessness, locked jaw and tensions in the shoulders might be anger. Maybe there's a facial expression as well, denoting sadness or joy. And finally, what's the mood of the mind? Do you feel relaxed? Is your mind settled, not thinking or jumping around too much, just present? Or is it tired, sleepy, or is it anxious, looking around, chasing after every thought or memory that pops up? Does your mind feel spacious and open so you can hear sounds and feel body sensations and feel yourself seated and be aware of all the sensations that are going around? Or does your mind feel very small so it's only really aware of just a pain in the body or a thought? So those are the three areas we'll pay in mind, the the breath, feelings, and mood. Now I'd like you to visualize some activity, something you do that's a little bit addictive, something that's a little bit what we call compulsive or addictive, something that you do almost mechanically, and if you don't get to do it, it feels uncomfortable. So for some people, for example, that's checking their phone for messages. For some of us, when we come home and we're Exhausted and a little bit lonely, we might binge eat or snack. For other people, when we feel a little bit worn down by the week and a little powerless or unhappy with our work, we might 
shop. For some people, when we feel uninspired or there's not enough going on, we might binge watch Netflix. For some of us who are feeling rejected, we might look on our ex's Facebook page, internet stalk. For some of us, it's consuming alcohol or smoking pot or whatever it is. Just what is that behavior that we go to, that there's this feeling of being driven to it, and if we don't get to do it, we don't feel too comfortable. For some of us, when we want to go online and then suddenly the internet's out, that's really uncomfortable. Feels like something really necessary and important is missing. All of these very strong inclinations or habits are actually repressive tendencies that are there to help us repress, not feel, not be with underlying emotions that we're uncomfortable with. So for the purpose of this meditation, I'd like you to visualize what you feel like or visualize a scenario where you can't do your favorite thing, whether it's your phone has run out of battery, the internet's down, you can't go online, you can't play the video game, you can't watch Netflix, can't go to the gym, it's closed. Whatever it is, and just feel, if you can, a little bit of that discomfort that we start to feel. Maybe visualize a scenario where you really, really need that behavior, where you really, really need to check your messages, where you really, really need to go online, and and it feels really off when you don't get to, when you don't get to go to the yoga class, when your favorite restaurant is closed. And the point is to feel what's beneath that compulsive tendency so that we can actually begin to integrate that feeling into our life, to not run from it anymore. What is that feeling that we find most uncomfortable? Is it when we feel disconnected, lonely, when we feel unheard? When we feel like a failure or 
We haven't accomplished enough. Whatever it is, see if we can be with just feelings in the body. Keeping the breath relaxed. Keeping the sounds drifting around us in place. Soft, grounding sensations so that we can be with whatever emotions or impulses we find painful. What is it we're most unhappy with about ourselves? Can we say yes, welcome it, not run from it? Can we welcome our sadness, welcome our anger, welcome our loneliness, whatever it is, welcome it and just be with it the way we would want to be with a child that was frightened. We'd want to take care of it. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl. And when you hear the sound, rather than simply open up your eyes and look around the room, if you do that, you'll throw away, once again, all those feelings that you might have begun to just connect with. The key of integrating in full self-acceptance and healing is to be able to be with whatever emotional states arrive, what impulses, without using thought or external distractions as a way to push those feelings into the background. So, when you hear the sound of the bowl, just open your eyes enough to see the ground in front of you and try to integrate sight into this embodied awareness where you feel the feelings, you know what mood you're in, you know what you're thinking, and you know what's going on around you. You're fully aware, you're fully awake in your life. 